Good morning. Man, it's fun being here with you this summer. Goodness, we are so excited that you are here. My name is Ben Chapman. I didn't introduce myself earlier, and if you're a guest this morning, I just want to say welcome. We are, we are thankful that you are checking out our space, and we hope that you feel like family this morning. That's really our heart and our prayer and our desire. And um, I, I want to do two things this morning. We have a, a sermon in Nehemiah chapter 6 and 7, which we'll get to in just a moment, but we also um, we, we have some very special people that we want to introduce to you and into our church family, and so if you're a guest, this is a little bit of family business, but, um, but I'm thankful that you get to see this moment. So if you have Bible's Titus chapter 1 verse 5 through 9 it says this the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you an elder must be blameless faithful to his wife a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This is talking about the overseer or what our church describes as an elder. And so I want to let you know that Luminance Church is, is an elder-led church. And specifically, um, me as the lead pastor, I'm an elder and overseer of this church. And I'm, I have such an honor to be able to pastor you and shepherd you. And, and I try not to be given to drunkenness. Um, that's, that's right. My wife's right here. She'll attest to that. It's really hard. But, but I try not to do that. We try to be... Above reproach, we, we try to, you know, make our kids behave and go spank them in the bathroom when no one's around and, uh, and, and, and threaten them with spoons often, but not when you can hear it. And we try to do all this to, to display God's character and his holiness on the earth through, through man, which we are an imperfect people. And by the grace of God, he's amazing. And, and in a different stages of our life, we realize that it would be, um, our church needs multiple overseers, don't they? they if you're growing to 200, 250, 300, you're going to have to bring people on to help oversee the church, and this will be our eldership team, and so we're entering into a yearly eldership team, so we have a, a yearly candidates of elders, and so they'll be going through a season as we're a young church, we're, we're still discovering who we are, I'm still seeing if you're given to drunkenness, and et cetera, et cetera, but... But as, as this church begins to grow, we want to just have people who believe like-minded in the gospel and a, a gospel-centered message on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And we want them to be able to come alongside and, and visit the hospital when you're sick and celebrate when things are going well and just be there to help shepherd you and pastor you. And, and, and as much as Brandy and I would love to be at every single place right now, we can. And it's so amazing. We love to. But there will be a season where we won't be able to, right, because of proximity and and. and just like Jesus, right? He, there was a proximity issue. That's why one of the reasons why he left so that the Holy Spirit could come so that he could be ever present in the believer. It's so helpful to us, isn't it, church? We're so thankful for that. So, so the candidates um, for this next 12 months that are in candidacy, candidacy over the next three weeks, and let me explain what that means, is over the next three weeks, if you see anything in this 
couple's life that doesn't fit with the scripture I just read, um, then that would be an opportunity for you to come up to me and to present that to me privately, of, of course, um, not, not from the microphone. Julia, don't grab the microphone and start shouting that out. But to come up to me privately and say, hey, I'm concerned about this one area. And then we can we can have a conversation with them, talk about it, pray about it and see if that's something that's still occurring in their life or they've repented and they moved on. Because how many believe in reconciliation and grace and and second and third and fifth chances? I mean, I believe so much in that. If I didn't, I would not be up here nor anybody else. So so I'm thankful. So our candidates are Voltaire and Cecile Ferrer. This is their picture. They're, They're amazing. And. Just awesome, awesome couple. They're actually stand, uh, over here. Would y'all stand up? Would y'all stand up? Just can we give them a, they're amazing. So, so they've, I've, I've approached them and talked to them about this. And so over the next three weeks, they're just going to, they're, they're going to be evaluated by you, the church body. And, and, uh, and they don't take that lightly. They take it very seriously as leaders. And, and not that we will um, do anything to judge every behavior or move, but is it fitting to this scripture? To this scripture, not to your scripture that you made up in your mind, right? But to this scripture, and so um, y'all may be seated. Thank you so much. And and they they have amazing kids. If you didn't know, they they were the three kids who played our medley during the meet and greet, our little ditty, and uh, they they all serve. Um, Krisha serves at ENC. Ross has led our youth ministry as a as a youth student for the last three or four years. Um, and and Josh is um, just incredible composer. He will be in Juilliard one day and and uh, but hopefully we'll get to keep them a little longer for that moment they're amazing their kids are amazing and 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 I want just want to reiterate this not perfect but they're amazing and God's grace is evident in their life and so I just want to invite you church if there's anything that you see specifically come to me but over the next 12 months we will do life together praying together praying for specific spiritual needs in our church they do not sit on our board, so that is another set of people, Chris Kelly and Daniel Stevens, who sits on our board to oversee the business side of church, because every church has a business side, and they oversee the finances and dot the I's and cross the T's and do that to accountability and transparency, but this is the spiritual oversight of, of being able to pray with you and believe for you. Does that make sense, church? So can we just pray for them as they go through this process, because that's not a fun process, and so let's pray for them. If you would, stretch your hand towards them. If you're around them, lay your hand on them. Father, I just, I thank you for Voltaire and Cecile Ferrer, God. I thank you, Father, for bringing them from the Philippines um, all those years ago to, to this place and this moment to lead in our church to help pastor these people. And Father, I thank you for their faithfulness, their diligence. I thank you, God, that they are, they, they just want the best and they want to please you, Jesus. And I love that about them, that they want to please Jesus. They want to glorify you. And so, Lord, bless them. I pray for a hedge of protection over them and their kids as their kids are all of a sudden in a new spotlight. I pray that that would not be a weird pressure. But, God, I pray it would just be a moment of honor and that, Lord, you would show them what it looks like. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, thank you, church family, and thank you, guests, for seeing that moment. So our hope is to pastor you well and, uh, and to keep 
fanning into the flame that God has put inside of you to do the greatness of what God has called you to do here on earth, knowing that a flame is just but for a moment, that one day we will be with our king in his kingdom forever. And it's an incredible journey. But I, why, why start it then? Let's start now. You know, let's start now living this out. And Nehemiah chapter 6 through 7 is where we're going to be. And, and it's a lot of scripture and a lot of strange names, a lot of Hebrew names. And I don't know Hebrew, so maybe I'll invite Gail up here. Probably should invite her up here to read this scripture to begin with. So correct me after service, Gail, not now. Okay. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 6. When word came to Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh, no. <laughs> but they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth. Time Samballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And have even appointed prophets to make the proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent them this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up all in your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah. The son of Mehetabel. Don't, don't know if that's correct or not. Thank you, Facebook Live, for throwing it out there. Who was shut in at its home? He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Samballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Samballat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and, now, and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechai, 
Uh, moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Chapter 7, after the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also point residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. And how many of you, that was fun for you to see me suffer through that? Well, that's the only time that we're going through Nehemiah. Praise God. You know, it just to uh, catch you up, Nehemiah is an impactful, amazing, encouraging story for an individual leader on how to do leadership. We've used it across the board all throughout our leadership, the Maxwells of the world, and everybody else who talks about leadership can reference Nehemiah because there's some timeless principles in Nehemiah that are imperative to us. But we've also positioned um, and taken this stance that it wasn't just about an individual, but it was about a people. That God wanted to build a people. He's not just, he just isn't just concerned with just the individual. You realize when he saves a person, he wants to save the family. Do you realize that? He, he's not just trying to save one. He's trying to save all. He's trying to save the family. And, he, and this is what we realized that, that Nehemiah was all about building the people, building the people and creating a safe haven for them so that they could worship their God in the temple. In the, here inside the walls was the temple, the place where you would go worship. How many think that's a good thing that we would build walls around our life in, in a healthy way so that we could worship God freely? How many of you know that's probably good that's probably good and obviously that there was great opposition and if you've been like me you read this story and it's amazing but but I've also not succeeded at a lot of things in life am I alone in that like I've failed quite a bit and and some of it I've tried really hard and and done really well and and really really put my hand to the plow and went after it but but mostly if I could be transparent is is something got in the way from me completing what I was supposed to complete or what I had the desire to complete. And I want to tell you that there's a real enemy. If you didn't know that, there's a, there's a real enemy. And, and much like Sambalat and Tobiah wanted to knock Nehemiah off his mission, there is a real enemy trying to knock the church off its mission in the world. And we read it through all the news, right, through, through a post-Christian culture where, where the values of Christianity are, are not readily available or readily recognizable. That, that, that There's a blend of many different cultures and many different belief systems. And in a post-Christian world, it's going to be harder and harder to identify what we're supposed to be about, what, what the mission of God is, what we're supposed to do and how to build. It's going to be a, a little bit more difficult. So we get into this place and we study scripture together and we read scripture. And just an encouragement, I was listening to a podcast and, and everybody was like, these millennials, you know, they're always hovering on the millennials. And it'll be the next generation, Generation Z after that. And, and then Generation, um, you know, whatever is after that. One, I don't know. What, do we start over? Do we go back to A? Do we go binary? What are, we, what are we doing? I don't have any idea. 
to be honest. But, but in, 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 they say the millennials, right, are the people who aren't reading the Bible. They don't know their Bible. They don't know the word. But did you know of Christian millennials that, that if the polls recently taken in the inner churches that actually 70% of them read the Bible on a daily basis? 70% of millennials are reading their word on a daily basis, those who are in the church and active in the church. That's, that's a high number because I thought it was going to be like two, you know, like I didn't think they read the Bible that much. I mean, but they actually read the Bible. Now I realize, oh, I got to read the Bible a little more because they may know more than me. So, 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 so it's going to be harder and harder, but as we're in here, we're reading about truth, and, we're, and that's what the millennials want to do. They want to find truth, and so they're drawn to the C.S. Lewis's and, and the different people who can explain Christianity, maybe different than how it was explained to them growing up, or as they get new concepts and new ideas are thrown at them, they start diving into it deeper and deeper and deeper, and I think that's good, but, but man, there's so much temptation to quit, isn't there? Man, I loved soccer growing up. Oh, that's too predictable. You already know where I'm going with it. But I'm, I'm just going to explain. I loved soccer going up. I loved playing soccer. I loved my, I loved my colleagues, my, 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 my teammates. That's the right word. My teammates. And I loved hanging out with them. I loved that we accomplished a goal together, that, that soccer is a beautiful sport of anticipation and waiting and teamwork and passing the balls and the accuracy of your passes and the shots. And, and I, I loved everything about it. It was, it was exhilarating to me and it was so amazing and, and 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 in seventh grade I was playing on a club soccer team black magic you know black magic maybe that's why I ended up quitting um, but but I played on black magic and I was so excited about this club team and going to travel and do all this stuff but 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 as opposition came to my life opposition came to my life in such a way that I remember in seventh grade I was actually clinically diagnosed with depression and, and some of you know my story where I had anxiety attacks and panic attacks and, and I would run out of the room. And, and then I found that my world started getting smaller because if you ever dealt with any kind of anxiety, your world shrinks, doesn't it? It shrinks and it gets smaller and smaller, leading to actually more anxiety and more depression because of loneliness. And, and it's, it's such a tactic by the enemy to wreak this havoc of anxiety and depression in your life. And realizing some of it's chemical and some of it's our makeup and too many diet cokes right hallelujah and and maybe some of that but but some of it's actually spiritual some of it's actually a spiritual battle that's coming against you and and the way that that sin has entered the world i want to tell you this right now i gotta tell you this wow so sorry marissa i want to tell you this this is amazing is is we can chalk things up to science and and we can we can start diagnosing everything but every diagnosis that's not life is sin and the result of sin. Not that you sin, but that we live in a fallen world. It's broken and it's incomplete. And so there's some spiritual things happening. And I'm going to tell you the natural is very much supernatural too. It's both. It's both in and you can't necessarily separate it. And so what you do is you may need a medication for a time as I did when I was seventh grade and, and also some great counseling and also learn how to read the Bible and journal and, and get spiritually right and put the truth of God's word into my mind and my heart and that it would deposit there and that I would start growing in that and becoming all that God wants me to be. And, and, and I quit building the wall on seventh grade of soccer. I, I quit because of anxiety. 
And I never played a sport like that again. It, it, it wreaked havoc on me. And why do I say that? It's so long ago. I mean, goodness, Ben, we're talking about 24 years ago. That's crazy. Some of us weren't even born. But there's moments in your life that God has put something in your heart, whether it's fun or exciting or, or maybe it's a hobby or maybe it's maybe a passion, maybe it's a career. Um, but whatever it is, I'm going to tell you that all that is spiritual too, right? Like it is all the mission of God. It's not just to evangelize with your neighbor. It's also to enjoy God fully. And we fully enjoy God by, by cooking and by doing things like this. You realize that? Like that, that's the fullness of God. That's what he wants for you. So, so, so in this enjoyment it was quickly robbed by, by a moment of a sand ballot moment of believing something and getting off the wall. And truth is, is we're all tempted to quit. We're all tempted to quit in many ways of what God's called us to. So individually, there's thing after thing after thing. And there's some things that God's called you to quit, but there's some things he hasn't called you to quit. And you just need to keep persevering and keep going and, and keep speaking scripture and speaking truth and, and speaking to that lie. That, that, that How do you combat a lie? Do you combat a lie with another lie? No, you combat it with truth. The truth of God's word, that's the only way to combat any lie that you ever believed or ever lived is, is with the truth of God's word and who you are in him. And it's amazing. And that's what he wants for you and me. It's what he wants. And, and yet there's also a mission for the church. A mission for the church in Acts 1.8 that, that the Holy Spirit would come and fill every believer and that they would go to the ends of the world proclaiming the gospel and moving this thing forward, right? It's why we send people to Baja, Mexico. It's why we're see, sending people to Joburg. It's why we're, we're sending people all over. It's why every, every Sunday you are commissioned to go into your workplace to, to go be a missionary wherever it is, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and a homemaker, which is a very difficult job, or, or whether you're... Whether you're <laughs> You're welcome, babe. You know, just trying to work it, you know. Or, or whether, whether it's, you know, a practice or, or a school or an institution that, that we, are, we have this mission of God to advance his kingdom and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and he's given us the power and the authority. But, but then we have these sandbellets who say, oh, church, you know, it's post-Christian. Uh, you know, are you really going to catch up? Are you really going to win anybody to Christ? You know, the, the world is actually moving away from Judeo-Christian values. And, and we see that, 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 that because it is in law, we also see that it is in humanity and in, in spirit and in family. And so, so we retreat and we have this retreatism thing. And, and that's not what God has called us to, is it? He hasn't, he hasn't called us to quit, but there's so many temptations to quit. There's so many temptations to quit, and, and the enemy will use scare tactics. Just like Sambala and Tobiah did with Nehemiah, I'm going to use a scare tactic to keep you from doing what God has called you to do. I'm, uh, I'm going to go tell the king. I'm going to go tattle, you know, the biggest tattletale ever right here in Scripture other than, um, you know, uh, Judas. It's like it, this is it, right? Like this is the tattletale of all tattletales. And, and, and he's writing all these letters, and then he doesn't even seal the letters so that Nehemiah could read what he wrote about, hey, this is a scare tactic. It's, a, it's amazing what he's doing, and, and we have scare tactics all the time maybe you've had some of these i'm i'm too old just too old some of you have this scare tactic i'm too young i just am too young to really make a difference some of us this scare tactic you're too smart you're too smart for that oh yeah i'm too smart so i'm above it or you're too stupid 
You're just too ignorant. Like you're too ignorant. You'll never know enough about this. You're, you're, you're unworthy. Oh, you didn't have a good dad. Why are you going to be a good dad? Your mother, she really was this. What's going to make you different? Do you realize you hear these lies that we've entertained and we sat on and we start to believe it? And the more you believe the lie, it's like the clearer you need to hear it. Say, what? What'd you say? And then you get closer. Oh, what, what was that? Then, then you get closer. Oh, man, you're right. Hey, tell me more about that. Oh, man. So true. You're right. I've been believing that. Yeah. I think I'll stay down here. Not really worthy to be up there. Not worthy to do what God's called me to do. I'm not worthy to finish this wall and finish this mission. We're just not worthy. And then down, eventually what will happen is you'll live a life of regret and shame and condemnation. You feel so beat up. And then it continues to isolate you. And it all starts with a lie of who you are and who God called you to be. It's the biggest thing that we can do in life is to find out who Christ made me to be and walk in that and walk in the mission that God has put us on. Russ Austin would always say this. He was my pastor back in Midland, and now he's in Jacksonville. He would ask his grandkids, hey, who did God call you to be? Who did God make you to be, he would actually say. Who did God make you to be? Well, I don't know, granddad. You know, I don't know. He goes, go find out. Ask the grandson, hey, who did God make you to be? I, I don't know, granddad. Go find out. Go find out who God has made you to be. And the way that you find out is by being around your maker. By being the one who's made you and fashioned you and put the hairs on your head and knitted you together in all the makings of who you are. And he's going to give you exactly who you're made to be. Who you're made to be may be a little different than who you're called to be. Because a making is identity. A calling sometimes is what you do. Does that make sense? I'm called to be a pastor. I am. I, there's a, the elders prayed for me, sent me out from Midland, Texas, here to San Antonio. You're called. They anointed me. But do you realize if the church dissipates or there's a big breakup or, or some mutiny happens over here in the corner on the back row from, from Bree or something like that? And, and Just kidding. And I'm so glad you're here. And, and, and that happens and, and the, the church ceases to exist. Do you realize, like, does it change who I'm made to be? It doesn't change who I am. Calling may have changed for a time, a season. Calling may have changed. You may make some decisions of immorality or some decisions that are going to reap some consequences in your life. It may change some of your calling, but it doesn't change who you are. You got to know who you are. It's amazing. And it's so freeing and it's amazing. And so, so we have to finish strong. We have to finish strong. It was 100 years since the wall fell. Nehemiah was 800 miles away. 
And he came and he rallied the troops. And with all the resources right there, in 52 days, he did what God promised and spoke to him as he fasted and prayed and got a burden. As he fasted and prayed, he didn't just make it up. Oh, man, I should go build that wall right there. Here I go. Don't go without God. (laughs) Remember that. Don't do it without him. Go with him, and he will give you all the resources you need. You realize everything was there. The people, the rock, everything was there to rebuild this wall. When I was 16 years old, my father, he he was a good dad, and he is a good dad, and he wanted to champion his son to be all that God called him to be. He read this book called Finishing Strong by Steve Farrar, and Steve Farrar wrote this book, and and he wrote all the stats of that, that one in 10 men who respond to the gospel in the 1950s will finish strong. And then he puts all these figures, this is what I mean by finishing strong, and he clarifies Somebody who's going to love God to the end, who's going to be faithful to his spouse, who's going to raise godly kids, somebody who's going to remain solid, someone who's going to finish strong. One out of ten men, and maybe it was a made-up stat, I don't know. Maybe it was just a, a pull of a hundred, I'm not sure, or a pull of ten. But, but what I do know is he, he grabbed many significant people throughout time who finished strong and some who didn't. And, and, and the time that Billy Graham was around evangelizing, there was actually two men who were greater than Billy Graham. Their crusades were larger. He would, they would do rally more people. They were more charismatic. They did all this stuff. But, but we don't even know their names because they both fell. To immorality, compromise, they tapped out, and Billy Graham kept going. You know, there's principle, right, in the tortoise and the hare. And there's principle in that. Slow and steady, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Read the scripture, read the scripture, read the scripture. Worship, 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 listen, solitude solitude fasting fasting meditating study there's some principles and it's just a little bit by a little bit by a little bit we're at this pastor conference with a hundred pastors that represent tens of thousands of people across the united states and and they and one of the pastors gets up and he tells a story he said you know, I was in Paris for our 44th anniversary. 44 years we were married. And I'm sitting in Paris, and we're in this coffee shop, and we're sitting there, and the sun was setting, and the Eiffel Tower was in the background, and it was all that you could dream of, the moment, the picture, and all that stuff. But the difference between him and maybe some other pictures that we've seen is 44 years. 44 years of him looking at his wife, thinking this moment, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. This is amazing. She, she's awesome, man. 44 years, and he said, you don't have the feeling that I had until you've been married for 44 years. And he called out all the young punks, like, <laughs> you don't have this feeling? You only been married five years. You don't get this feeling until you've been married 44 years. What did I learn from that? If you just put your hand to the plow 
Just keep serving the Lord and loving him and let him love you. Not that it's about works. Let me use something else. You just put your hand to the pen and start writing him love letters and letting him write them to you. And you just keep going. And you just keep doing what's right and keep going and going and going. What happens? Life is amazing. It's so well lived and you will finish strong. Ephesians 6, 14. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, that you would stand firm then. That you would stand firm then. Five times. Five times Nehemiah had to stand firm on this wall. Five times. Bro, you could talk to me, just tell me three times. Hey, man, you want to go out to eat? Nah, I got to stay home with my wife. Bro, you should come. Nah, I can't. I mean, dude, everybody's going to be there. All your friends, all your dudes, don't worry, man. Just, just do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I should do that. It doesn't take me much. The belt of truth. Stand firm with the belt of truth. I need truth. I need truth. Why do I need truth? Because Romans 125, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That, that if we compromise truth, then we'll end up worshiping something else. It will be the first sign of compromise in your life is when you start violating the truth of God and start entertaining something else. So what are some two ideas that help us finish strong? What are some things that we can walk out with practically? First, evaluate what's at stake right here if you can't get this done. What's at stake right here if you can't get what God has called you done? What's at stake if you compromise the mission? What's at stake if you compromise your family? What's at stake if you compromise that, that job by doing something uh, unethically? What's at stake? What, what's at stake when, when God has called you to build this wall and build these things? What's at stake if you don't get it done and you get off the wall? What's at stake? We tell people this all the time. We learn it from a counselor. Whatever feeling and thought you have right now, that vain imagination, that fantasy, play it out all the way to the end. And what you'll find out is you don't really want to do it. Oh, man, it's going to cost me my kids. I'm going to see them only once a month. It's going to cost me a bank account. It's going to cost me that time when I'm alone. And she actually encourages me. She actually encourages me. But all I hear is negativity right now. But, but that one time she said this and then that. And then, oh, yeah. Right? And then you start playing it out. And you, you know, what is life like without that? What's life like? It, it, what's at stake if, oh, man, I really just want to leave and, and just give myself to alcohol and just do that. But what's at stake? Well, eventually my liver shuts down. And I become the person that everybody hates. And I become all these things. So what, what's at stake if you can't get this done? I, I, used to, I used to think that life would happen through osmosis, everything, right? Anybody else in university? Justin's in nursing school right now. He's just sleeping on his books. Like, just get, get through that membrane. Just go, go in there. Right? Did anybody else do that? Like, man, I just, I, I want life to happen through osmosis. And, and when our society and culture was predominantly a Christian culture, Christian Judeo society, 
There was a lot of osmosis happening. We had a lot of cultural Christianity. Uh, it just happened. You just, you didn't cuss. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. You, you just, you just, this is what you're supposed to do. And you go to church every Sunday and, and you're supposed to be right. And I, I want to yell at my wife, but I can't because if I do that, then everybody on my block will say, what are you doing, man? Like, we don't do that. That's not our culture. That's not our society. Like, what are you doing? And, and so you just, you just behave through osmosis. I'm telling you, the day of osmosis is over as a culture. So how are you going to grow? How are you going to finish strong? You got to ask yourself this question. What's at stake if I don't live this? What's at stake if I don't do this? And the second thing that helps us finish strong is knowing that we can finish because Jesus finished. We can finish because Jesus finished. I'm going to tell you, like, we read Nehemiah. We read him building a wall. We're like, yes, Nehemiah, I can do it. I can finish strong. Wait, he was just a man thousands of years ago, and now he's dead, and he's just bones and ashes. It's not really going to do much for me. It's not very motivational. Like, like I don't, I mean, that was great, great story, but it's not enough. You see, we need to worship a Jesus a Jesus who, who finished strong. At the last moment when Jesus was on the wall, he was tempted, just like Nehemiah. He, he was tempted just like Nehemiah. He was tempted to come down from the wall to, to, to not fulfill the mission that God has placed him on earth for. He was tempted in that moment. Josh, come close me out up here. Get rid of our synth. Hallelujah. Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. They were doing this to Jesus. You are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you were the son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of the Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him over and over and over again. Jesus was on the wall. The wall was being built and there wasn't, there wasn't any crack. This was perfection. This was the moment that he had. And there was these letters being sent up his way. Come down from the wall. Save yourself. Come on, Jesus, come down. Do you realize he was tempted in every way, according to Hebrews 4? He was tempted just like you and me. Stop that mission. Stop being a good father. Stop being a good mother. Stop being a good son, a good daughter. Don't honor them. Don't do this. Like, just stop it. And he, and he, he keeps sending these letters your way. But for Jesus, he said, those letters aren't good enough because I serve a higher God, a God who I do trust. And I'm going to live this life perfectly. And I'm going to die this death so perfectly so willing and even though it hurts so painfully because I'm, I'm holding on to one last breath you realize he was pierced for our transgressions he was bleeding the death that you and I should bleed out and we should bleed out even more horrifically even worse than that we deserve so much worse but because he didn't come down 
He died and he fulfilled the promise. Three days later, he rose again because he was faithful to the promise. He rose again and he trusted God fully. And because of that, you and I now have power of life fully in Jesus Christ. Just like Romans 10, 9 says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did. He didn't get down on the cross. No, he died for you and me and he paid our penalty. He's the greater Nehemiah. He's the greater motivation for me and my family and his reason I live and the reason I breathe. He's amazing. Church, I want to pray for you. If you wouldn't mind closing your eyes. I want you to evaluate your life. Evaluate your life of am I finishing strong or have been compromising? My finishing stronger, I've been building on the wrong soil. If I've been building on the wrong foundation, am I building on the rock or am I building on the sand? God, I even pray that supernaturally by your Holy Spirit, you would put in minds of what's at stake. What they would lose if they continue to walk this way. What would be lost? I pray that you would paint it so clearly not to condemn but to know what you're paying for. What did you pay for, Jesus? What do you want to change? How does that make us different? How do we live differently? If you're in this place and you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, but you'd like to today, I believe that he finished the good work on the cross and he rose from the dead. I believe him and I've never accepted it until today, but today I want to accept it. Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you specifically? That's me. Pastor, I want to accept that. Praise you, God. Father, I pray that there would be courage amongst everybody in here, Jesus, that you would show yourself and reveal yourself and as you call us to a deeper level of lordship, a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of love. love. We realize it's not about our righteousness, but it's a plate of righteousness, actually. A righteousness that you give that we couldn't earn, but you gave freely because you're so amazing and you give so freely life eternally. So we're so grateful for that. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.